0: For details on the program, visit ekfelt.com slash thrive. That's
2: E-C-K thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Whitney Beatty. She is founder and CEO of Apothecary Brands. We're going to talk to her about the work that she's been doing in the cannabis space, the products she's developing, really interesting stuff. I love the fact that cannabis is so much kind of a lifestyle and really kind of the branding that goes into it. We've come such a long way from just kind of the plant itself and kind of the you know kind of smoking a joint to really taking our cannabis consumption, our cannabis lifestyles very seriously. And I'm fascinated by, by people who are finding interesting kind of niches and, and ways of developing products and services around that. So I'm excited to have the conversation with that. Whitney, welcome to the program. Yeah, so let's do a little bit of background and then we can talk about the products and and where you kind of fit into the cannabis space. How did you get into cannabis? I mean, what was the kind of the backstory that got you to wanting to launch a cannabis brand and what was the motivation to kind of get into the cannabis space?
3: Um, It's actually funny because I came to the cannabis space in in a very odd way. So I didn't actually use cannabis growing up. I didn't use it in high school. I tried it a couple of times Uh, in college and, you know, actually got paranoid and Scared the crap out of myself and was like, this isn't for me. And I was working in the entertainment industry. And I don't know if you're familiar with that space, but it is a tad bit stressful. Um, just, just, a t- just a tad. Just a bit. So I was at that time, I was working as a producer and a development executive. And I was working on a show and putting in, you know, 14, 16 hour days when I was sitting at my desk at work. And all of a sudden, my chest tightened. I couldn't breathe. My heart started to palpitate. I was sweating profusely. We were in the middle of production, and I didn't want to scare anybody. And so I got up from my desk. I got in my car, drove over to the UCLA Medical Center here in Los Angeles, left my car where they parked the ambulances. Because I, I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was dying. And I was yeah. like, you know what? Yeah. I don't care about this car. I'm going to be dead. Screw the car. <laughs> Forget the car. And I was sending those text yeah. messages that you send to friends like, oh, I love you. Remember me. <laughs> um, that was the whole thing. And I went in and told them I was having a heart attack. And so they took me right back. I'm like, there's people with stab wounds in the waiting room. And I'm like, no, me first. Um, oh, wow. And they hooked me up to the EKG and they're like, you are not having a heart attack. And I'm like, to hell I'm not. And they're like, you are not, you are having an anxiety attack. And that changed the game yeah. for me because what it did was it made me have to deal with that anxiety. And so the doctor started putting me on different drugs and I didn't like this drug and I didn't like that drug. And as an offhand comment, my doctor said, well, have you tried cannabis? And I was like, <gasps> Oh. You, it was, you know, because for me at that time, she might as well have said, have you tried methamphetamines? Um,
2: yeah. <laughs>
3: crack, crack. Yeah, exactly. Well I right crack, crack will fix this right up for you. Uh, but what it did is it made me do some research. It made me look yeah. into the plant, what the plant does, how it could help me. And also, and maybe even more so, why I had such a negative connotation about the plant. I grew up in the 80s in Detroit, um, mm-hmm. in the midst of a very active drug war. Yeah. And so it made me, you know, do my research on Harry Anslinger and, and and the demonization of the plant and also the, race, the racial connotations yeah. um, that came into that. And I started using cannabis to control my anxiety and it was fantastic. And in the main, as this was happening, I realized that part of why I had bad thoughts about the plant was what the media was doing to it and how it was being portrayed. And I was yeah. a part of that because I worked in the media. You know, we see cannabis as something that bad kids did behind a gym or, you know, co-eds were doing to be wild and all that stuff. But we don't see this medical side of it. And we don't see the mindful side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I was just become a parent. You know, as this journey continued, mm-hmm. I had a dog. I had all these things at home. And I realized that uh, generally I was hiding cannabis from myself. I was, you know, I didn't want my kid or my dog to get into it. So I put this on one top shelf and the grinder on this top shelf. And part of having a smoke session was a scavenger hunt that happened beforehand uh, to, <laughs> to find all the things that I, <laughs> that I needed to do this. And I realized that as a person, I kept my wine in a wine fridge. I kept liquor in a bar, kept cigars in a humidor, and I kept my high-end cannabis in a shoebox under my bed. That's actually (laughs) not a thing. I'm like, why? I'm like, I don't want to invite people over and and share cannabis with them out of a baggie. This uh, this feels compromised. And I I really wanted a beautiful place to keep everything under lock and key. And I looked around and I wasn't able to find anything. And I was like, you know what? Cannabis is supposed to be a $40 billion market. I think that there are more people than who are like me, who have these same sensibilities and who'd be interested in a product like this than I know. Then I decided to start taking the leap and I decided to build it myself. And then like any good entrepreneur, I you know quit my job, sold my house, and started a company.
2: <laughs> so tell us about, uh, I mean, you kind of described generally the, the problem you're solving for folks, but what is the solution in terms of it, you know the product itself? Uh, how did you come up with it? What were the iterations? Any good sort of failure stories <laughs> in terms of things you tried that were like, hey, maybe this, I thought this might work, but clearly I'm it like, doesn't. It,
3: it did. It took a lot of trial and error to get to where we are now. So the classic apothecary case offers really four value propositions. We have security uh, via a secure key and combination lock, humidity via humidity controlled lids in all of the jars. So you're making sure that you're keeping your cannabis at the right humidity point. And that's important and people don't really talk about it because cannabis is a plant and as such, it needs to be kept in a humidity controlled environment. If it's not, it has the ability to dry up and have those trichomes fall off. And the trichomes are where you're getting that euphoric high from. So when they fall off, you're not getting that medicinal value that you have for the plant, and you're spending, you know, sixty dollars an eighth. Um, you mm-hmm. might as well have, you know, spent twenty. Um, you're mm-hmm. not, you're not yeah. getting what you paid for. And the other side of that is that, you know, it it could become too wet and it can get moldy and no one wants to be smoking moldy plant. Yeah, yeah um, no, not good. Yeah, exactly. And so then we also offer a style that matches your decor without raising odor or eyebrows. So, you know, we're not the the, the company that has, you know, tie dye and psychedelic mm-hmm. pictures all over. We want stuff that's going to fit into your lifestyle and, and never make people wonder what's inside. And that, yeah. part of that is being able to hold those smells inside too. So you walk in and it doesn't feel like... You know, the first thing someone says, (laughs) I know you got cannabis in here somewhere. And then then finally, convenience, because you've got everything in one place. And so that's why we have uh, two sections to our cases, Um, Mm -hmm. one section that is there to keep the plant fresh um, and you can keep your, you know, the actual flower on one side and the other side, which is uh, separated, is for your tools. So, you you know, you don't want to have tools in the same place as the plant because that burnt resin smell can infuse into your plant. But on the other side, you can put your pipes, your trays, your grinder, your lighter, your, you know, hemp wicks, all of those sort of things. And so it's all in one place, very convenient. I and mean, it really helps, you know, make that ritual okay. And for yeah. me, it was about how do I want to store this? How is this most convenient? And so I went through a million uh, different iterations of it and and trying to put it together in a way that made sense and taking it to all my friends who were in the space and saying, does this Uh work better for you? Does that work better for you? Or what have you? And it's still to this day, we still iterate to make the product a better fit because that's a part of the cannabis industry. You know, the way people consume changes you know, uh, often yeah. We're seeing, you know, people eat, using more edibles now we have more oil cartridges and those sort of things. And so we want to make sure that the products, you know, continues to iterate in order to make it useful to all of those consumers.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious for for products that were born out of kind of personal need or person you know, personal situation. And as someone, you know, kind of designs the perfect product for them and then when they start getting some feedback, you know, friends, you know, early customers, things like that, any big surprises that you learned about how maybe how your need is different or where there was a where, where the, the need was slightly different out in the general market than when you thought or kind of insights that you developed in that process?
3: Oh yeah. I mean, so the way that I started was That's a long story. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I got to this place where I need proof of concept. And so Uh uh, we had 100 cases made and I put them on a website and crossed my fingers. And these 100 cases sold out in six weeks with no advertising. And I was like, bingo, I'm on the money. And then Uh what I did was I went back to every one of those people and sent them a survey and harassed the heck out of them. So they would tell me what they needed. You know, so I, you know, the case this case is too heavy. You know, there's not enough room in this nook. I need the grinder to um sit lower within the case. I need the jars to be a little bit wider. So all of those notes we were able to compile and then go back to the drawing board and redraw what we did before. I think one of the things that initially I thought that my product would would skew a little bit younger and would be a little bit more female than it was when it started. I kind of uh, thought that we would be, you know, maybe 50-50 or 60-40 female. And it ended up to be on the flip side of that. My consumer is also older than, you know, I I thought. I thought I was talking to, you know, 25-year-olds and I'm really talking to 35-year-olds, 40-year-olds, which is, you know, actually where I am. So,
2: yeah. And do you think that's is that price point is that life situation, you know, 25-year-olds are fine keeping their pot in a box or like what's the what what's your kind of realization or I
3: think it's price point. So the people who, you know, because we're we're definitely a luxury product, so we have mm-hmm. a higher price point and so Price point becomes part of it. It's it's the value add. I think at that that age group understands the value of a product like that. They're also the people who are you know keeping cigars and humidors and yeah. that sort of thing. And so, Appreciation. absolutely. And the yeah. safety aspect. Once people do have other people in that house, they do tend to be more careful about the way in which they're storing things for safety.
2: Yeah. And I'm always curious when to go from kind of this idea to actually having a manufactured product. I mean, what was the process like? And I'm curious. What kind of kind of experience or insight you had starting it, and what was you just kind of had to go through the school of hard knocks in terms of you know getting stuff manufactured? You know, is a whole is <laughs> a whole process. What did you learn? Tell us a little bit about the insights there.
3: Oh yeah, I like yeah. Where were you when I was starting? I have, I have a bachelor's degree in theater and a master's degree in film. Uh, Directing and producing, and neither of those prepared me for supply chain management. So it was definitely a trial and error doing CADs for manufacturing, understanding what the hell CADs for manufacturing are. (laughs) Um, I found the end of the internet as I was searching how to make this happen. And I swear I talked to every manufacturer around the world, U.S. manufacturers, Mexico manufacturers, manufacturers out of Asia. We, we looked everywhere. Um, and it really was a trial and error. It was me being able to, we did the initial CAD stateside and I sent them out to probably 12 different manufacturers across the world to get samples in, to see who could do the best job. Because part of this was, you know, I grew up with a grandfather who was a woodworker. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, in his wood shop. Um, And it was important to me that these were handmade and that they were crafted, you know, in quality. And so Mm -hmm. it was, that was the game and trying to figure it out. And we've been through two different manufacturers since we started. We started Mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing out of Mexico, which was actually good for us at the time because it was very close to the U.S. border. And at the time I was doing a business accelerator down in San Diego. And so I could go Mm -hmm. to the factory a couple times a week, and watch what we're turning out, and being able to make iterations on the spot to make it make sense. And we've yeah. since moved our our manufacturing out of there, but it was a great place to to start. You know, mm-hmm. manufacturing is difficult, and it's even more difficult as a startup when you're not. You know, you're not producing at numbers. Um, <laughs> so, so you're going gonna... yeah. <laughs> exactly. No one wants to play play ball with you, and you're you know begging to get things done, and you still need to be able to do this at a A good dollar amount. And it's funny because the the first person I hired onto my team full time was a head of supply chain management. And one of the things that he said to me, which still resonates to me to this day, is that um, manufacturers are like milk, they're good until they're not.
2: I'm I'm stealing that one.
3: (laughs) And it's the absolute truth. As a startup, you have to be, you know, you want that great, you know, relationship with your manufacturer. But you also need to know what are your other options? What happens if it goes bad? What happens if it spoils? What You know, because you can't put all your eggs in that one basket. You just can't.
2: Yeah. And what did you find in terms of things that you learned to do or processes you learned to kind of follow? You know, if, if someone was, you know, kind of starting this process, what couple of pieces of advice would you give them if they're, if they're looking to outsource a manu- manufacturing a higher end kind of product?
3: Show up. Yeah. That, that is, that is uh, I don't care if you're manufacturing out of China, go to China, go, okay. to, go to Thailand, go to wherever you're make, making this, show up. It makes yeah. all the difference in the world. Manufacturing is also about relationships. If yeah. you're not there, you're not in their face. You know, it does not become a- as important. I know the people who are making my product because I show up and it's important. Yeah. And so I have had a good relationship with, with my manufacturer. I didn't realize how important that was. Um, until I, you know, this is an intricate product. I, I really need to be able to be there and you don't have the time. I realized how much time I was wasting, especially when I'm doing product development by, you know, I'm going to give you guys stuff and then you guys are going to send me a sample and I'm going to get it three weeks from now. And I'm going to tell you what's wrong with it. And it's going to take you another three weeks to get something back to me or whatever. I don't have that kind of time. Um, get on a plane.
2: Yeah, yeah. get that. it done in two days.
3: Exactly. <laughs> it really does. It makes all yeah. the difference in the world. So yes, go.
2: Well, and I think the other side of that too is that you can appreciate the challenges, right? Like you literally see them producing it or you see the equipment or you see, you know, like I think it's one thing to be like, here's the product I want and just kind of tell them what's wrong, but without really understanding why, why it's not showing up the way you want, you, you can't really troubleshoot. You can't really say, oh, I get it. Like this, this wood is too soft for something that small and we need to either go to a different wood or we need to make this metal. Or like, like you actually can see the problem and why it's a problem and actually solve it rather than just kind of pushing back. Hey, I don't like this.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And it does. I've several times had, the, okay, now I understand. Now I see where the issue is. Let's flip it around. Let's do this. And I can make decisions on my feet from having been there. And it makes me a better partner to the manufacturer because then now they understand that I'm aware of all the challenges that are facing. And then, you know, the other part, I think that was really helpful for me in this process was that in the beginning, you know, it was just me. So I was getting the cases in. I was kidding them myself. I'm like out of my garage. I had literally built my own sweatshop and I was the only person working in it. Um, (laughs) Your own prison. Exactly. I was like, this is not what they said entrepreneurship was going to be. I'm like Uh, sweating balls, but it really helped me. I know my product. I know what it takes (laughs) to put it together. I know how to, to ship it out. I'm very familiar. You can't, as a CEO, believe that you're going to sit on, you know, some pet still somewhere, and watch the other people put this thing together. There's no one who knows my product better than me. From the inside to the outside, to every joint, to every joist, to every hinge that is there, I'm familiar with it. And that, uh, to me, is critical for me to be able to build this business and to make better business decisions.
2: Uh, I always find that when working with CEOs, I can tell the difference between founder CEOs and you know later stage CEOs, just because of their intimate knowledge you know of the business and like why customers love it and and how it's evolved, like what they've learned over it. it's it's such a difference, I find. you know, it's a challenge on the flip side because as the company kind of grows in skills, you know the, as a leader as a CEO, you need to kind of focus on other things and sometimes it's hard to let go of the kind of the craftsmanship of the work that you do, but it really is, I can tell. Tell me a little bit about the sales and kind of marketing side. So you, you know, you mentioned you started out with this, you know, hundred cases, and and you were able to sell them without sales and marketing. I'm assuming that you have to do some kind of marketing now. What has been your strategy? How have you kind of approached this? What's uh, give us some insights.
3: So we still, you know, yes, we do marketing now. We're still young, scrappy, and hungry. We've really been successful on the guerrilla marketing front you know, we are still, you know, startup phase or what have you. So we don't have a ton of money to throw behind branding. So we have to be smart at what we do inside. So most of our ad dollars are going to being able to pop on Google AdWords or what have you. Partnerships that we've done have been really successful, especially with our midsize influencers. And Mm -hmm. we've been incredibly lucky to have A lot of great partners across, you know, our business ventures who have been working with us um, and getting our product out there. Um, I think that what we've been uh, particularly good at is, you know, making our customer base happy and getting them to recommend us. Even now, as we spend money on AdWords, you know, over 60% of our traffic comes in direct. Which means that someone that is great, going right? to, you know, their web browser and typing in the And that makes mm-hmm. me really happy because that in and even in this space we're still seeing about sixteen percent is, you know, people who are re, rebuying, you know, uh, okay. more cases, coming back and getting oh, more cases. Um, what uh, and you why are so. they rebuying?
2: I mean, I my, my initial impression is this is like I'm curious on the rebuying how my initial impression is that this is a product you kind of like you, you you kind of save up your money you buy one nice one and that becomes like your signature piece are these gifts are these like what is what are you noticing about the rebuying pattern
3: that it's a lot of people are giving them as gifts which is great to okay. us but a lot of okay. people you know are saying you know this is my third case this is my my second case. It's become
2: more of a collectible, and yeah, I was just gonna say it's like a collectible.
3: And that for us is fantastic because yeah. part of the the fun for me is the design work. I love the design. I love yeah. being able to play with these materials or, or what have you. And so, well, as we started doing limited edition runs of particular designs or what have yeah. you, they've been snatched off the website really fast. You know, uh, quicker than we had anticipated. We'll you know put them up, and a week later. They're gone. So that has been really exciting to see people come back and be then, you know, seeing them pop up on Instagram and on TikToks or what have you about what they've gotten. And ultimately, you know, for me, um, what I really wanted was to be able to do partnerships with brands and designers or what have you um, to be able to do these limited edition runs and have a really distinctive feel for the person who we've partnered with. And so that has been really exciting to see that take off.
2: Yeah, and is that? I mean, I'm curious about that sort of collaboration strategy, partnering strategy. When you choose a partner, I guess what are you looking for? Are you looking for like a, kind of a brand extension? Or are you looking for you know kind of a complementary product service? I mean, what's what's your strategy in terms of finding these partners, doing these collabs or with with folks?
3: Ultimately, what I want is to uh, be working with. Uh, other lifestyle design brands. So it's not so mm-hmm. much about product, you know, yeah. it, it's more about the the artistry of it. As, you know, an amazing street artist who wants to collaborate, those are the things who you know, a handbag designer, a watch designer, yeah. um, those are the type of partnerships. I want, you know, things that, that, that are distinctive and beautiful and functional um, more than um, just being able to, do a partnership with someone else who makes a grinder. You know, I really want something that that's going to have added value for my customer base.
2: Yeah. And are you finding, I mean, because of your kind of background and entertainment media, are you finding that is kind of coming into play or is that helping you in terms of, you know, the relationships or knowing how to work that industry? Is this integrating now for you?
3: It's starting to come into play. It's been something that I've wanted to do for a while and we're starting to see more of it. Um, we're also starting to see, you know, us being able to work with more brands that are coming online and also dispensaries that are coming online and being able to do distinctive cases for them if they you know they want to do a cannabis of the month club and and be able to provide cases to their customer base we can do something you know that is distinctive to that brand and to that that space for those customers so more than ever we've been seeing that sort of work come our way and it's really exciting
2: yeah it's fascinating and this this idea of the back your background in media and production entertainment have you been able to kind of tap that history and that those relationships to actually now bring this together
3: yeah to to a certain extent, absolutely. I, You know, being able to have the conversations is great. I think now more than ever, people are more willing to consider it. You know, uh, mm, yeah. when I first started trying to have these conversations a couple years ago, I mean, people's agents were laughing me out of the room because they were frightened <laughs> of touching the, you know, they didn't want to be anywhere near the plant because they thought it would yeah. hurt other Sponsorship opportunities. So yeah, like like, Exactly. So they're like, uh, uh, no, nah, no, nah, no. Nah. And now we're seeing as more celebrities come into this space, as legalization spreads across the board, we see more people who are willing to have the conversation. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I guess what are the goals, ambitions? Like, where do you where do you want to be in a couple of years? You know, as as you look at kind of product development, as you look at business development, how do you see things evolving?
3: So it's funny. I had, uh, you know, as I have conversations with investors, I would have you, they always ask me, you know, whose business do you admire or do you see yourself being over the years? And I've always said that I want to be the supreme of cannabis. And I say that because supreme is a streetwear brand that does amazing high-end collaborations. So Supreme plus, you know, Mm -hmm. Louis Vuitton, Supreme plus just across the board. And that's the the name Supreme. I mean, at the end of the day, a cotton t-shirt is a cotton t-shirt. (laughs) <laughs> but uh you know be, the name brings value and that's what i want for apothecary i want there to be an assumption with the name of apothecary brands that there is a value there that you can count on and i want it to be attractive enough that we can get those high end collaborations and those partnerships underneath our belt um, and build amazing things for the cannabis space
2: I love it. And in terms of product strategy, any kind of areas that you're pondering, you know, in terms of branching out to, are you really kind of focused on the cases? Or are there other, as you kind of build out your product lines, I'm curious where you see it going.
3: So, you know, storage is our business, but we are continuing to pivot as we look at the way that people are consuming. So, you know, we started out as a, you know, a case for flour. Um, you know, in the last year, we've launched a case for dabbers that has, you know, LED backlighting. Um, with, you know, clear glass jars so you can see through and look at the consistency and the color of, you know, your concentrates, which is really important for that market. As we saw that market grow, we wanted to see, you know, to be able to serve the, that consumer. Right now, we're working on some cases for um, people who are using pens. We've also been doing some uh, testing on some edible-based cases. Um, So for us, it's as the market pivots, as we see that new consumer come in and realize the way in which they're consuming, we want to be able to adjust to that and to be able to give storage solutions for all those consumers. I mean, at the end of the day... I think that if we we aren't on our toes and we're not moving we get left behind in this market and so yeah. we have to continually keep our ear to the ground and, and iterate
2: yeah yeah I think it's sort of driving you know driving product development and finding kind of innovation driving that innovation beyond what the, just the base case is, seems important and, and yeah uh, have, have you noticed uh, competitors coming out I mean what's what's your kind of sense of the the landscape at this point
3: Oh well, there's you know there's always uh, always competitors coming out you know it's there's enough market out there for everyone so i try not to stress myself out about uh, competition but i have seen more people coming into the space and i've seen people you know iterate following us and i'm you know i'm fine with that if you want to follow uh, where we're going that means i'm going in the right direction
2: yeah exactly yeah imitation is the best form of flattery as they say
3: exactly and you know and at the end of the day the only real place Obviously, this is a new market, new consumer. Um, so it becomes really hard to be able to predict where a market goes. And the best place for us to be able to look becomes the um, the cigar humidor market. And so the humidor market in cigars is the $10 billion market and $1 billion a year is spent on storage. Really? Um, and if you are taking that and looking at a $40 billion cannabis space, for us, that means that there is a potential, you know, Four billion that is spent on storage, yeah, um, and so we want to we want to crack our market share there
2: yeah, no, it seems, and you know I'm assuming that you're generally I find luxury products are recently profitable, <laughs> and that you you know you don't need to sell up you know a hundred million of them to have a decent business uh, have you looked at like where your audience is? Is primarily U.S.? Or are you finding you know folks in Canada internationally? Where? Give me a sense of the geographic focus.
3: You know, we're mainly in the U.S. I've got about seventeen percent of my business is coming out of Canada right now, which is you know is significant. Um, and uh, so we're yeah. we're working on um, being doing a better job of being you know based out of Canada so we can um, get around some of our um, the duty issues there because with seventeen oh, yeah. percent of my my. Uh, a business coming into there and those people have a worse exchange rate and uh, they're paying, you know, yeah. taxes and duties on top of that. That is a dedicated consumer who is spending a lot of money to get to us. Yeah, so we okay. want to make sure that we are uh, serving them. But more than um, ever, we've been getting a lot of uh, pull out of Europe. Uh, and so we've been looking at that European market. We've got some wholesalers that are in Germany, Italy so it's it's been uh, really interesting to to watch that market develop as well.
2: Do you think there's a there's just more developed maybe a slightly more kind of style conscious market there or what's what's your kind of thinking on why why Europe has done well?
3: I think it is a style conscious market. Um, the people who, I mean, it's funny because they, they have been the customer base that has been most angry at me for not being there. Because for you know a couple of years, I was like, I'm you know I need to focus on the U.S. market. I need to be able to focus on Canada. We're not you know doing even wholesale out of Europe, and they're like, what's wrong with you? Why won't you sell to us? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for exactly. you to get a distributor.
2: Take our money, please. <laughs>
3: exactly. I was like, you guys are kind of pissed. <laughs> I don't understand, but I, I think it is. It, it has a lot to do with, with the style of of the case. I think that is but what we're hearing from that market. And uh, I think that that lifestyle aspect really speaks to the consumer.
2: There. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, I think it's, um, as we develop the cannabis market in the U.S., I think that's one of the biggest plays, you know, developing lifestyle brands around this, that, you know, it's not just about, you know, the plant itself, it's about everything around the plant and, you know, um, you know the social and the personal identity, I mean, all that kind of things. Absolutely. Yeah, Wendy. This has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Apothecary, what's the best way to get that information?
3: You can always check us out online. Our website is theapothecarycase.com. That's t h e a p o t h e c a r r y case You can always find us on Instagram at theapothecary uh, with two R's, and you can always find me at on Instagram as the High Mommy Life.
2: I love it. I'll make sure that those handles uh, and links and everything are on the show notes so people can click through and get the information. Whitney, thank you so much for taking the time today. Pleasure to talk to you. Great conversation. I love talking about the style on the life side, so I really appreciate the time today.
3: Thanks, Bruce, for having me. It's been a great pleasure.
1: You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.